Welcome to today's podcast about our new Nodia on Your Mind report, uh, Cash Trump's Profits. I am Johan Trokmer. I run the thematics team in Nodia Research. And for this Nodia on Your Mind report, we have two guest authors, my colleagues Hugo Fredriksson and Johan Hallgren from the Quant Research team uh, here at Nodia Research. They have written a new Noin report about cash conversion, uh, a pretty exciting topic, I think. And Welcome to you both here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Hugo, I'll start by asking you, cash conversion seems like a topic which should be obviously interesting. I mean, who doesn't love cash, right? But but apart from stating the obvious, what is cash conversion in the context of what you write about in, in this report? How do you define it? Yes, yeah, so... Generally speaking, cash conversion is is all about the ability to to, current, to turn accounting profits and accounting earnings into into cash flows that are available in the very end to to equity investors. Uh, we have chosen to define it as operating cash flows minus capex over EBDA. Uh, it means that it turns into a metric uh, that pretty much describes how much of a company's EBDA is turned into those cash flows that an equity investor could could in the end actually get their, get their hands on. Um, and looking at the data, European companies uh, since 1999, so the last 20 years, as little as 31% of EBDA has actually been turned into, into these cash flows. So obviously it's incredibly important and any differences in the ability to, to convert cash or profits into cash is, is going to be very, very important when, when analyzing companies. Um, in the very end, the cash conversion boils down to, to basic principles on capital allocation and, and being efficient basically uh, two large items that and that uh, is a large part of of uh, kind of taking cash conversion from not being a hundred percent but rather 31 percent is capex investments and changes in working capital um, those are the two items that have potentially at least the largest impact on, on cash conversion. And we have found some really, really interesting uh, conclusions on both of those two areas that we will get to later. Turning to you, Johan, it's obvious that companies, in this case large listed companies, would care about cash conversion and cash flows a lot if they have, say, liquidity problems, if they have a difficult situation. But normally they don't normally they perform reasonably or even well uh, and 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 if that's the case why should large corporates and why should their shareholders investors care a lot about cash conversion rather than the reported profits it's an incredibly powerful metrics in that sense that it captures aspects of operational efficiency strategic proficiency capital structure and business model into one single metric and ends up at free cash flow and free cash flow is why we invest in a business because we want to get a claim on on this free cash flow and the and the essence of a, the very value of in a firm for corporates and, and it's a very very useful tool for investors to have in their toolbox when when looking at this for corporates it's all about the process how to go from being bad conversion to good conversion. And 
and the strategic processes involved in, in doing this. And when we're looking at our data, and we do something we call a backtest, where we simulate, uh, we simulate a system systematic strategy uh, where we buy the companies with best free cash conversion ratio in each sector. And this is important because every sector is, has different capital intensity. So we really need to compare this to peers. So we, we put all the best in one portfolio and all the worst in another portfolio. And we have seen that the portfolio with good cash conversion has outperformed the market by 140%, while the portfolio with bad cash conversion has underperformed the market with 70%. So if you get this right, investors will, will reward your company. And over how long a time period is that performance comparison? This is over the last 20 years, so since 1999. So over 20 years, if you have been a shareholder in the companies which are best at converting reported profits into cash, you have performed 140% better yes, than the have. market. That's a pretty staggering outperformance. Yes, and it's very, very stable in terms in times of the financial crisis and where, where the market really goes down. The free cash, the portfolio, it still goes down, of course, but not as much as the market. Yeah. It's pretty strong evidence to suggest that investors really care about cash flows and cash conversion. Yes. Hugo, if we talk about corporate investments, what we usually call capex, capital expenditure, I guess there could be uh, a paradox here that on the one hand, if you invest a lot, you generate less cash, at least when you invest today. But on the other hand, if you want to grow a lot, you might need to invest to, to actually generate that growth. Uh, what should corporates do based on the findings of, of this analysis that you've done? Should, should they invest for the future and to generate growth and spend a lot of money to, to actually deliver that growth? Or should they just sweat their assets and, and, and try and invest as little as possible? And, and, and what are they actually doing? That is a very, very interesting question, and that was that's what makes uh, the the question about capex that interesting. I, I would argue there's no one one size fit all solution. There's no uh, kind of optimal level of capex. It is exactly as you say. It is the biggest drag on on cash flow generation. About forty percent of EBITDA in in European companies the last twenty years have been invested in capex. Uh, so hence, it is a a drag on on cash conversion. But on the other hand, it is the very essence of enabling growth. Uh, so it's important, but on the other hand, it comes at a, a great cost. Um, what we clearly see in our data is that companies that do invest more than than sector peers, they do tend to grow more than than the the sector average. So capex investments they yield results in terms of um, in terms of above sector growth, which in itself is is a good thing, of course. Um, but at the same time, it comes at a significant kind of cost of, of cash flow or drag on cash flows. 
the companies that invest the most uh, of their, or the, the companies investing the most in CapEx, they on average spend more than all of their operational cash flows in CapEx, which means that very, or more, less than, less than zero, I guess, is actually turned into, uh, into profits or cash flows that's available to equity investors. Um, so then the question about where are companies today, what are they actually doing at the moment? And what we see is that CapEx levels, CapEx to sales or CapEx to total assets, regardless of ratio you look at really, we see one very clear pattern and it's that companies today invest very, very small fractions of, of sales into these capital expenditure projects, um, which is interesting. It's boosting free cash flows at the moment, so cash conversion looks unusually good, but capex levels are unusually low, um, and we fear that it might run the risk of undermining uh, future earnings capacity, uh, which would be a bad thing, of course. Um, and an, an interesting and topic that relates to this is all about how investors regard or how the market uh, kind of look at at different capex patterns and what we see is that companies that have consistently very high capex levels they on average tend to underperform the market but pretty much all of that under underperformance is originating from companies that only occasionally do these very large capex projects uh, so we, we see that companies with uh, with high capex to sales ratios, for example, they do underperform the market over time uh, quite significantly. But all of that underperformance is uh, is derived from companies that have this large capex investments, but that tend to have them very very rarely, and where they have a very lumpy capex pattern. Um, and that made us look a bit closer into those companies. Um, those companies, they tend to uh, invest heavily only once in a while and usually into these very long, big projects that introduce a lot of project risk. It might be building a new pulp and paper plant, for example. Uh, that in itself is a project that will run for many, many years. The project in itself has uh, brings a lot of uh, risks uh, or execution risk in that, but also in terms of ramping up production might be uh, might introduce additional risks and so on. Uh, and secondly, the the kind of time span that we're talking about here in itself is a uh, is a large risk. Um, timing is one of these really interesting questions. Uh, it is usually said that capex is a very late cyclical. Uh, phenomenon and our data really proves that that is the case, especially among the companies that do these infrequent investments in capex. They they tend to do those investments just prior to a large financial crisis, or not only a financial crisis, but uh, it might be before the IT bubble burst. We saw and, and pick up before the the euro crisis as well. So. Timing is important, and if we look at, at history, timing has been far from per perfect. Companies that do these large uh, investments prior to a sharp downturn in the, in the market, they they get rather punished for doing that. Um, 
the, the demand that caused them to do these investments initially might be gone when the, the production capacity is, is up and running. Uh, and that is obviously something that will bring significant drag on, on margins and earnings um, as soon as the the factory or whatever it is that the, the money was used for is up and running. Uh, just a final remark on that as well is that it becomes very, very important to communicate clearly to, to the market, to investors uh, regarding these types of projects. Um, what are reasonable expectations to have on the project? Uh, what should be the return? Why are uh, you doing the investment? And what's the kind of end goal of it? Uh, we see that companies that do make large uh, capex investments, they usually also see rather dull estimate development. Analysts that analyze these companies, they tend to uh, they tend to be too positive of the consequences of the investment. And when when it's time to realize the the uh, the benefits of the investment, it actually turns out that it rarely becomes as good. So managing, I guess, from a corporate perspective, both your own uh, expectations, but also the expectations of, of market participants is really, really important. And for everyone that can, it is clearly favorable to try to spread out CapEx investment over time as much as possible. It will eliminate the timing problem. It will uh, reduce volatility in, in cash flows, which is something from an investor perspective is incredibly helpful and and a positive thing because it reduces risk. Um, so smoothing in and out CapEx investments, that's number one. And when you do these large projects, try to communicate and be as clear as you can about about them. Hmm. Interesting. So from, from if you want to try and put it pretty sharply and simply, from, from a share price performance point of view, you don't get punished for investing. Investors want to see you invest in order to be able to grow, but you do get punished if you invest a lot in one single go and you take a serious risk of getting the timing wrong. So you're stuck with that new capacity at the very time that the market turns down. Yeah, that's exactly what our data shows. So in order for a corporate, what you should do is not to stop investing, but rather to try and even out your CapEx profile and spread it out if you can. Yeah. To the greatest extent possible, really. Johan, you mentioned working capital earlier. Uh, obviously, one of those two major factors affecting the cash conversion of large corporates. Uh, wh why is that important, now that we've talked about the CapEx side? So, <clears throat> we have looked a lot at the, on the cash conversion cycle, which is an eff effect of inventories, accounts payables, and accounts receivable. And if you can run your business with less capital tied up, you, you run it more efficiently. But the big part is, firstly, you can get the capital release. So when you do the first decrease, you can release the capital tied up in your operations, and you can use this, this cash more efficiently. Mm. You can use it to invest in growth projects. You can put it back to in equity investors, and you use it where, where it where it is better used. And what about the return on capital? Uh, yeah, but uh, so when you get this first initial capital release, you can use it more efficiently. But you could also also argue argue that 
in the low interest rate environment, this is not. Why, why do you need to release cash when, when cash is free? So uh, this is important from, from two aspects. In a DCF framework, uh, the interest rate is also reflected in the back or the discount rate. So to, to get to the intrinsic value of your firm, we discount all, all future cash flows uh, with, the, with the discount rate. And, uh, and uh, since in this low, low interest rate environment, we put a lot cash tomorrow is worth a lot more in this low interest rate environment than mm. in a high interest rate environment. Mm. So we put a lot more weight on future cash flows. Um, so if you can just increase your future cash flows by a small margin, it will have a large impact on the total value of your firm. Mm. And if you can do this uh, capital light, you, you can do that. That's really interesting. When I meet large corporates, I sometimes hear from people in the treasury, okay, so if we release cash from reducing working capital, we will have more cash. And the problem is that today, in most currencies where we invest that cash, we will actually get a negative return on it. So it's going to cost us money to have the cash. Then you could always pay it out to your shareholders. But if you are going to keep it in the business, it's going to be a cost. Yeah. And that's obviously not a particularly appealing incentive to reduce working capital. No, but what you're saying now is that the other argument is that if you reduce it, it will actually increase the value of the company. Yes. Because you will, in the years ahead, tie up less cash. Exactly. And get marginally better free cash flow, right. which will have a much bigger weight in the total total value of your company. Yeah. And the other part is if, if you if you give it back to equity investors, they, they don't have a zero percent as their hurdle rate. Right. So they, they can if you can't find projects within the business that exceed your cost of capital, you can give it back to the equity investors which can find better projects where yeah. this money makes better work. Yeah. They don't need to hold the money as cash with a negative return. They can invest it in something else. Exactly. Now, are Nordic large corporates good at working capital management? Uh, that's actually surprising because we have seen that uh, the Nordics lag behind our Euro the European peers. We normally have longer cash conversion cycle and more working capital to sales than, than our peers. And uh, the cash conversion cycle is generally used or seen as a measurement of management quality mm. and Nordic companies are generally regarded as very well managed. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of improvements that can be made in the in the Nordic region. Then again, there is no silver bullet for everyone. Sometimes it, it's beneficial to have high working capital, but you need to know why you're doing it and that you're doing it. Mm. Hugo, looking at sort of overall conclusions from this study, uh, if, if you're a large corporate and if you're considering how you invest, how much capital is tied up in, in the form of working capital in the business, what should you take away from the conclusions of, of, of our study uh, on, on, on this topic? What, what should large corporates do? How should they think about this going forward? 
So first of all, I guess, is the, the conclusion of the report really that cash conversion is incredibly important. It matters a lot. It is an incredibly important factor in, in the very process of creating shareholder value. So that's the, the very core of it. Uh, in terms of um, what a corporate should do and uh, to, to do well within this field, I guess, is I would argue that to dare to look at cash flows before reported earnings or, uh, or sales growth is one important step. It is usually a lot easier growing sales and EBDA than, than growing free cash flows. Um, and making sure that cash flows are prioritized is, is a very, very important part of it. Uh, and lastly, and, and point that I think is important to make is that we have, we have seen evidence that it is very much possible to improve within this area. Uh, having a mindset where cash flow is important tend to both increase the, um, the capital efficiency in terms of working capital, but it can also have implications on how you choose to, to invest money in, into CapEx. Um, what we have seen is that private equity companies are notoriously kind of focused on uh, on cash generation. Companies that have been IPO'd by that type of owner, they are usually a lot more cash generative, or co- they are companies with higher cash conversion than their sector. And to us, that is an important kind of piece of evidence that points towards the fact that companies can improve if you're willing to invest time and and um, commitment into improving your cash conversion. So previously private equity owned companies have sort of shown the way that by determined efforts you can structurally get better at it. And and correspondingly if you look at potential other explanations have you seen any evidence that it's because of which industries the listed companies in the Nordics are for example that would explain why their working capital management is not as good as in US or in Europe. We have looked at it both on an aggregated level, of course, but also on a sector-specific level, and we see that the the difference between Nordic companies and and European and North American it's very very consistent, pretty much across all sectors. Right. So it's not that we have a different sector composition here in the Nordics that that drive the conclusion, but rather, uh, but rather something else. Right. Uh, and I would argue that perhaps the fact that. Uh, that we haven't gone through any significant hardship here in the, in the Nordic region. We have been faring okay even during the financial crisis. It didn't turn out to be a long period of hardship. It was, it, it kind of didn't drive the necessity to to be lean and very very capital efficient. Right. Uh, it has been working being a bit away from being capital efficient yeah. and and that might be one one of the very reasons for why Nordic companies are lagging. But the the benefit from improving is is substantial really. Yeah. Just the capital release in Nordic companies, we have looked at a large peer group comparison and we find that the capital release, if every company were to become as capital efficient as their average peer, that alone would equate to some 6% uh, of the market cap in, in, in cash release. Right. And on top of that, you would get the kind of value effect that Johan is talking about, owing to the fact that being more capital efficient means that you can grow at greater free cash flows in yeah. the future. Uh, so all in all, it is hugely value accretive. 
And that's just be- from becoming as capital efficient as your average peer. Yeah. And the, the benefit obviously gets even larger if you were to become best in class. Or and all that would be potential upside, which has nothing to do with the business cycle or any assumptions about where demand is going to go. It's all about what the companies can work with and execute themselves. Exactly. It, it's all about kind of metrics that a company more or less have internal control over, yeah. uh, which makes it an incredibly attractive thing or a lever to pull. Especially, one could argue, if um, if we're getting into a market where demand starts to weaken slightly uh, or even significantly, depending on what we'll see, uh, I guess, coming years. Uh, but it is one of these levers that becomes increasingly interesting to, to look at uh, when, uh, when demand isn't as high as it has ever been, really. Sure. Um, Well, it's been very exciting for me to participate in the podcast as a moderator, since I'm usually in your chair in this context, in in having been a producer of the Nordea Online Report. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Johan. Thank you, Hugo, for participating in this podcast on this very, very exciting topic and impressive work. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.